Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. October 2020, California Freemason Magazine, and the theme of this issue is the Noir Issue. Light is the first and most important symbol of Masonic teaching. The journey from darkness to light mirrors the candidate's search for meaning, for wisdom. Light represents the divine truth, the essence of goodness. Of course, you can't have the light without the darkness. It's in that darkness, that state of ignorance and unknowing and imperfection, that the seeker begins his journey. It's the place of sin and vice and avarice and confusion. It's where the mystery begins. This month, we're creeping back into the shadows for the first ever noir issue of California Freemason, a roundup of crime, secrecy, and moral turpitude, all with a Masonic twist. It's our peek into the hard-boiled, the enigmatic, and the cryptic, all inspired by our favorite dime store novels and black and white films, because where's the fun in spreading the light if you never stop to appreciate the dark? The Mystery House. How a San Francisco Mason solved a real estate mystery and a literary secret by Lindsay J. Smith. William Arney's life took a turn the day he bought his gray fedora. It was November 1981. The purchase was in celebration of his big move to San Francisco, the cool gray city. Three months earlier, he'd arrived on a one-way ticket from Illinois with nothing more than his two suitcases and a job interview lined up. Turns out the fedora was a savvy move. That winter was a wet one. Arnie paired the hat with a gray trench coat, cutting such a striking figure around town that a friend suggested he start reading Dashiell Hammett's hard-boiled detective novels. The tip resonated with Arnie, who plunged himself into the classic San Francisco writer's crime dramas, including The Continental Op, The Thin Man, and Red Harvest. Arnie, now a member of Marin Lodge number 191 and California number 1, was hooked. A year later, he signed up for a Hammett-themed walking tour of downtown San Francisco, visiting the real-life sites described in the novelist's most famous stories. The tour stopped outside the unassuming building at 891 Post Street, where the writer lived from 1926 to 1929 and wrote his first three novels, including the most celebrated, The Maltese Falcon. He didn't think much of it, but the memory of the building stayed with Arnie for more than a decade until one night in 1993 when he passed by the corner in a taxi and noticed a for-rent sign in the window. Talk about foreshadowing. Arnie, already something of a Hammett fanatic, was buzzing, but he needed to know if the available unit was actually the great writers. Hammett's letters from the time bear the return address of 891 Post Street, but never listed a specific apartment number. So, like a gumshoe from the Continental Op Detective Agency, Arnie started digging for clues. First, he turned to his well-thumbed copy of The Maltese Falcon, in which the protagonist, Detective Sam Spade, lives in an apartment widely believed to be modeled on Hammett's own. Arnie, an architect by trade, sketched a layout of Spade's flat based on descriptions from the book, mostly in three key scenes. Then he compared those with a blueprint of the 1917 building. The plans he found weren't very detailed, but they did contain the original design of the bathroom. 
The Maltese Falcon ends with an iconic scene in which Spade searches the femme fatale Bridget O'Shaughnessy for a key piece of evidence in the bathroom of his apartment. And the quote from the book, He sat on the side of the bathtub watching her and the open door. No sound came from the living room. He put his pistols on the toilet seat and, facing the door, went down on one knee. He did not find the thousand dollar bill. When he had finished, he stood up holding her clothes out in his hands to her. Thanks, he said. Now I know. To Arnie, that was crucial intel. The room was shaped such that Spade could sit on the edge of the tub, within reach of the toilet seat, and still leave enough room for O'Shaughnessy to stand between him and the door. Just with those criteria, I was able to eliminate almost every apartment in the building, he says. Except one, apartment 401, the very unit up for rent, in the building's northwest corner fit the bill. It had other telltale quirks, too, like a 90-degree bend in the hallway mentioned earlier in the novel. All told, the apartment was a minuscule 300 square feet. No matter, Arnie moved in. The closer he looked, the more Arnie found clues about the apartment's literary past. Weeks after signing the lease, Arnie flaked a bit of paint from a door jam. Underneath was the flat's original varnished wood detailing, which proved easy to strip. Arnie began to meticulously restore the apartment to its original. He refinished the flooring, installing a vintage glass and wood door he found in the basement, purchased a Murphy bed, and furnished the unit with other circa 1920s pieces. He even created a secret compartment in the floor under the desk. It would have been a great place for a gun or for an unfinished manuscript, Arnie says. As the apartment got closer to resembling Hammett's, Arnie delighted in rereading the Maltese Falcon. You can pretty much put yourself in the story, Arnie says, watching headlights move across the wall at night. I got the creepiest feeling looking up at the ceiling and thinking, this has got to be just about exactly what Hammett saw every night when he went to bed, he says. Arnie invited the Hammett walking tour to make the apartment a regular stop. Before long, he'd become part of the inner circle of Hammett fandom. He went to the unveiling of the Maltese Falcon statuette from the 1941 John Huston and Humphrey Bogart film at John's Grill, another locally famous Hammett haunt. He met Hammett's daughter and granddaughter, and in 2005, when the group of friends of Libraries USA installed a plaque on the building to commemorate it as a literary landmark, Arnie met and befriended Eddie Muller, the founder of the Film Noir Foundation, who asked Arnie to serve as an announcer at the popular San Francisco Film Noir Festival. For 16 years, Arnie lived in apartment 401, but unlike the bachelor Sam Spade, 300 square feet didn't cut it once Arnie got married. Still, he kept the apartment for two more years after tying the knot, even following a move to San Rafael, fearing that if he gave it up, a new tenant would undo his hard work. Salvation came, as in so many mystery thrillers, from a shadowy stranger, in this case, a billionaire with a literary inclination. Arnie won't name names, but the silent Parker t partner took over the lease and agreed to preserve the apartment. Today, the unit remains much as it was in 1929, unoccupied but cared for, as if awaiting Sam Spade's return from dinner at John's Grill. A tinny alarm clock and a copy of Drake's Celebrated Criminal Cases of America, a Spade standby, rest on the desk. A leather rocking chair sits in a corner. At night, lights from cars streaming down post and hide rake across the walls and ceiling like roving eyes searching for clues. The next article is called The All-Seeing Private Eye. A Masonic Sleuth for Hire Keeps Digging for the Truth by Ian A. Stewart. I'm a fact finder, begins John Hodson, a Modesto-based private eye. If the facts look bad for your client, tough. While Hodson's practice is more about social media searches and records requests than overnight stakeouts, the ex-police officer isn't above indulging in a bit of his inner Philip Marlowe. 
We caught up with the Master Mason and Private Dick for the skinny on life as a professional sleuth. California Freemason. How is your work as a private investigator different than what people expect from the movies? John. Private eyes, gumshoes, whatever you call them, generally have a seedy reputation, looking through windows, filming sexual misconduct, stuff like that. Certainly we do a lot of background checks, and we've followed people and done surveillance. But in California, you know, you can't climb over someone's fence to spy on them. Everything we do, it has to be out in the open. California Freemason. Do you have a favorite case? John. One sticks in my mind. An individual had shown up in court 23 times for a single charge of assault with a deadly weapon. It had been going on for two years. I was hired by the defense attorney to investigate, and with three days, not only had I given this man an alibi, I'd also located the weapon and got the name of the guy who really was involved. California Freemason. You have a background as a police officer as well. Is that how you got into this line of work? John. In 1977, I became an officer in East Yorkshire in England. I deal with everything from poaching animals to fights, robberies, assaults, you name it. For three years, I was with the riot squad, and then I worked as a detective. I came to the United States in 1991 and did all kinds of jobs until I got my citizenship and became a Modesto police officer. I did that for 16 years until I retired in 2011 and started my business as a PI. California Freemason. And your wife is your partner? John. Yes, I started Hodson and Hodson with my wife, Alyssa. She's excellent on social media, doing background and searching that and other data banks we get information from. She's helped find missing heirs to fortunes, things like that. We deal with anything from a missing dog to a homicide. California Freemason. You've got a very distinctive Northern English accent. Does that help in your line of work? John. Actually, yes, it helped me when I was with the police. I'd go to a dispute where people were getting aggressive, and I'd say, how are you doing? And they'd freeze and look at me like, wow, what's that accent? And the friction was gone, so people knew me, they remembered me, and the accent helped. California Freemason. Were you first drawn to Freemasonry in England? John. No. Actually, one of the attorneys I worked with here was a Mason. In fact, he'd been with the Scottish Rite, the York Rite, and the Shrine, and we started discussing it one day, and I told him I'd been, been interested. And he said, look, that's the first step. He invited me to a cigar night, and now I've been a Mason for five years. The next article is called The Code Breakers. For hundreds of years, Freemasons have cloaked secret messages in cryptic ciphers. For some, that's just where the mystery begins. By Ian A. Stewart. Brent Morris eagerly studied the figures, rows and rows of neatly arranged, entirely indecipherable markings, like hieroglyphs or Chinese Hanzi, only written in Greek or Latin or Hebrew. In the center, a pyramid made of 14 rows of blocks encased the letter S with a horizontal line above it. Elsewhere on the page, which was taken from an obscure 19th century text, appeared other illustrations. In one corner, an open book adorned by strange lettering. In another, a scroll surrounded by a skull, stars, and a crescent moon. Other people had puzzled over the page before, reproduced in a volume titled A History of Royal Arch Masonry. And yet to Morris, it wasn't bewilderment or frustration that seized him when he looked over the mysterious passage in the late 70s. It was exhilaration. No wonder. By day, Morris worked as a mathematical cryptologist for the National Security Agency, studying, developing, and breaking codes for secret government communications. In his free time, Morris was, and still remains, an active Freemason, a 33rd degree at the Scottish Rite, an editor of the Scottish Rite Journal, a former master of the Quator Coronati Research Lodge, and an affiliate of dozens of lodges and concordant bodies. So the case of the Masonic Cipher spoke to both sides of his brain. 
Of course, it wasn't the first time Morris had encountered secret Masonic writings. For hundreds of years and across many countries, Masons have used codes to mask communications of various kinds. According to Masonic lore, the first such cipher was cut with a mallet and chisel and used by Hiram, the king of Tyre, Hiram Abiff, and King Solomon, the king of Israel. By the 17th century, references abounded to the Masonic word, known only to members. By the 1700s, this arcane knowledge was part of the mystique of the Masons, Morris says. French Masons, in the 18th century, further popularized this sort of clandestine writing, including use of the Pigpen cipher, which came to be known as the Masonic cipher, and drew characters based on a tic-tac-toe or X-shaped grid. These simple substitution codes, in which a new figure or character replaces each letter of the alphabet, are crude and easy to break, Morris explains. Yet they provide just enough of a barrier to the non-initiate to safeguard a message, at least for a while. It's somewhat useful in that it lets you preserve secret information, but more important, it becomes a symbol of secrecy, Morris says. It's like when you get the key to a city. It doesn't really unlock anything. Such substitution ciphers proliferated through various grand lodges in the 19th and 20th centuries, and keys to many were even sold in guidebooks by Masonic publishers. Today, the use of Masonic codes remains common, although in place of formal ciphers, ritual training manuals are often written in a sort of shorthand, or what Morris describes as an aid memoir. It provides a sort of casual security, he says, so if you left it on a coffee table or an airplane seat, anyone who picked it up would go, huh, what's this? Morris explains their use this way. Think about the lock on a door. Sometimes it's not that strong, but all you need is something to keep the dog in the house. The cipher Morris encountered in a history of Royal Arch Masonry, part of a manuscript belonging to a Dr. Robert Folger of New York, dated 1827, was altogether different. Where other Masonic ciphers used simple, monoalphabetic substitutions, the Folger manuscript was far more complex. Each figure, or hieroglyph, seemed to be composed of several characters nestled into groups. Morris puzzled over the enigma using his usual code-breaking techniques, but without luck. He referenced the Folger cipher in an article on fraternal cryptography he wrote for the summer 1978 issue of the NSA's internal journal Cryptolog, and at the same time shared it with a fellow cryptanalyst named Donald Bennett. Cracking the code. Bennett attacked the cipher with zeal and a lot of patience. He started out by scanning the document for clues related to frequency. For instance, among characters grouped together inside a box, 42% included a horizontal line near the top. Surmising that the box stood for the first letter of the word and the line for the second, Bennett hypothesized that the line stood for the letter E, the most common letter in English, and the letter most frequently appearing as the second letter of a word. Then he searched for repeating digraphs, or pairs of strokes appearing together. In English, a common example is QU. That turned up a distinctive pairing in the text, a crescent moon shape followed by a backward gamma figure. It couldn't be QU, however, because in several instances it appeared at what Bennett determined must be the end of a word. There are no English words that end with QU. But it did suggest another common pairing, TH. By focusing on figures containing the likely TH digraph, Bennett was able to zero in on what he believed was a four-letter word that read TH blank T. The only possible word it could be was that. Armed with this knowledge, he now knew the symbol for the letter A, a single dot. Having shaken loose the letters T, H, A, and E, he was able to hunt for longer words. Here, Bennett relied on Morris for additional hints. In any text, there's a coded element hiding in plain sight, the language itself. 
There's specialized terminology in just about everything, Morris says. For instance, in an academic setting, correspondence is likely to contain references to semesters, adjuncts, symposia, or deans, all familiar enough English words, but rarely used outside a collegiate environment. For anyone who's read through an uncoded Masonic writing, the experience of feeling overwhelmed by the lexicon is all too familiar. Words like brethren, ashlar, and cowern occur far more frequently within Freemasonry than outside of it. Armed with a list of common Masonic terms, Bennett inferred that, for example, the frequently occurring figure he interpreted as T blank blank TH was more likely to be truth than, say, tenth. From there, more coded items could be pried open. Bennett hunted for two-letter po two possibilities like two and or, then three-letter words like our were within his grasp. Next, he searched for double letters as an effort. On and on he went, picking apart each graphic for clues, cautiously making assumptions, testing them, and swapping in letters as they were revealed. Before long, he had 15 characters deciphered, then 20. Finally, he'd recovered the entire alphabet, along with several figures that represented common words like and, his, and they. In relatively short order, Bennett produced a rough translation of the manuscript, which read like a homily on the importance of the Bible as a guidebook for living, possibly a speech to be delivered to initiates. While the excerpt was not familiar to Morris as being from a regular Masonic degree, it seemed clearly related to the craft. In fact, the word masonry appeared on line three, and the phrase newly enrolled initiate was used several times throughout. Reviewing it, Morris determined that the lecture must come from a master mason degree in a French-style lodge, a strange possession for a 19th century American mason in New York. Even with the text deciphered, the mystery felt unsolved. The what of the cipher had been cracked. The why remained. A mystery wrapped in an enigma. So Morris took up the case again, trying to piece together information about the text's purpose and its author. He knew that the manuscript had been recovered from a journal kept by a Robert Benjamin Folger, a New York physician and Freemason. On the title page, the journal reads that it should be bequeathed to a brother, Dr. Hans B. Graham, and that if he is unable to take possession of it, it should pass to a Mr. Ferdinand Halsey to preserve the substance in his mind while he committed the manuscript to the flames. Morris began to research the mysterious Dr. Folger, combing through Masonic records and meeting minutes. The picture the materials painted was one of the enthusiastic, if somewhat freewheeling, Freemason. Folger was born in 1803 in Hudson, New York, and moved to New York City in 1817, where he apprenticed to become an apothecary. In 1824, he was initiated at Fireman's Lodge No. 368, and he set out on a dizzying campaign of Masonic endeavors. Two years after his first initiation, he joined the Jerusalem chapter of the Royal Arch, was received in a council of the Royal and Select Masters, and was dubbed a Knight Templar in Columbia Encampment No. 1. Soon after, he helped launch a new and short-lived chapter of the Royal Arch, received the 4th through the 32nd degrees of the Scottish Rite, and joined the Lafayette chapter of the Rose Croix. At the time he wrote his cipher, Folger was senior warden of the newly chartered Zerubbabel Lodge No. 242. From there, Folger rose and fell rapidly through the various appendant bodies. Partly that was a result of his almost boundless zeal for Freemasonry, and partly it owed to the fractured nature of the craft in the middle of the 19th century. Folger personally lived through at least six different Grand Lodges in New York and 14 Supreme Councils of the Scottish Rite. He was twice suspended for non-Masonic conduct or writings and was highly involved in a briefly active and in retrospect illegitimate branch of the Scottish Rite known as Cernuisium, a rival to the Supreme Councils. 
Later, he joined and participated in a revival of the separatist St. John's Grand Lodge of New York. At every turn, it seems, he picked the losing side of internecine fraternal fights. It's possible and entirely likely that Folger's coded manuscript was intended as part of a breakaway Masonic body Folger intended to found, but never did. The frequent clashes with Grand Lodge didn't necessarily indicate Folger was a malcontent, however. Rather, Morris determined he was a product of a chaotic time for Freemasonry. Throughout all of this, Morris later wrote, Folger was seldom an idle bystander, but was actively involved in many of the controversies. He is today viewed as a schismatic, a troublemaker. While his Masonic career is perhaps as checkered as the ground floor of King Solomon's Temple, one cannot study his life without feeling that he was a remarkable Freemason. In the scheme of things, the enigmatic Folger cipher didn't contain much in the way of groundbreaking secrets, but its existence pointed to a long and profound history of secrecy and mystique within the fraternity. Folger was by no means the only 18th or 19th century Mason to develop his own code, and the Masons weren't the only fraternity to use them. In fact, the period was practically overflowing with fraternal bodies that aimed to communicate covertly, or at least appear to. In 2011, an international team decoded the so-called Copial Cipher, another highly irregular code shrouded the initiation ritual of a Mason-like group of occultists who borrowed heavily from the language of optometry to perform a symbolic ritualized surgery on initiates' eyes. Today, in an era of supercomputing and digital encryption, such ciphers seem like a relic from a distant and exotic past. But to Morris, even if they're not exactly cutting-edge security, they still serve a purpose. It's like a lot of other things about Freemasonry, he says. It's only a secret from someone who's not smart enough to do a Google search. The code is really a mark of acceptance in the society, he continues. We're not just an evolved trade guild. We have those secrets going back 400 years. And that's kind of cool. The Perfect Crime Masonic Mystery Maven James Lincoln Warren on a Perfect Hard-Boiled Story by Ian A. Stewart Masons share a fondness for unraveling life's great mysteries. James Lincoln Warren loves putting them together. Warren of Santa Monica Palisades Lodge No. 307 is an expert of the tightly wound detective story. He is a frequent contributor to the long-running Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, and a past president of the Southern California chapter of the Mystery Writers of America. He's behind two celebrated mystery series, the Trevisco of Lloyd stories about the exploits of an 18th century insurance investigator, and the Cal Ops Detective Agency series about a multiracial PI outfit probing contemporary Beverly Hills. A master of both his crafts, Warren was given the Black Orchid Novella Award in 2011 by the Nero Wolf Society, and in 2019 he received the Hiram Award for service to his lodge. California Freemason caught up with the prolific writer to talk about parallels between masonry and mystery writing and the enduring appeal of pulp fiction. California Freemason, how did you get started as a crime writer? James Warren, I started writing in grade school. I had my first published story at 19, but it took me 20 more years to get another story published. At that time, I was writing mostly science fiction, but it wasn't really cutting edge. Science fiction is the literature of ideas. Mystery is the literature of behavior. Temperamentally, mystery was a better fit for me. California Freemason, you differentiate between hard-boiled crime fiction and noir. What's the difference? James, hard-boiled is about tough guys who win. Noir is about tough guys who lose. So, for instance, the Maltese Falcon is hard-boiled, but double indemnity is noir. 
Generally, there's very little humor in noir. It's about desperation, some sort of obsession. California Freemason. What are the essential elements of the genre? James. Writing hard-boiled stories as I do, you have three characteristics. First, rather than being a fair play puzzle like in Hercule Poirot, they're usually travelogues. There's a lot of shoe leather, you discover the clues as the detective does, and you arrive at the solution at the same time as the detective. Then you have a mix of convention and invention. The convention is the thing you expect to see to be satisfied. The knight in rusty armor, as someone called it. The detective with his own code of ethics. The invention is how you differentiate it, often through the use of setting. The setting is almost a character in itself. California Freemason. Why do you prefer to work in short stories rather than novels? James. In terms of choosing it as a form, it's a matter of temperament. I remember I was on a conference panel and the moderator, a novelist who is a friend of mine, introduced me by saying, Jim does something I don't do. I build clocks, he makes watches. And I thought that was a perfect analogy of the novel versus the short story. Everything has to fit exactly with every other piece, all tightly packed. California Freemason. Why do you think crime drama remains so popular as a genre in literature and film? James. You know, I used to work in a bookstore, and if someone came in and said, I don't like mysteries, I'd say, I'm sure I can find a mystery alike. Mystery encompasses everything from madcap humor to serial killer stories. Most mystery readers are above average in intelligence, so that the process of putting together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle appeals to them. California Freemason. Do you see any similarities between Freemasonry and crime fiction? Both deal with mysteries and secrets, of course. James. The primary thing that connects Freemasonry to crime fiction is ethics and morality. In the final analysis, every crime fiction story winds up being a morality play. The difference between right and wrong. The symbols of Freemasonry almost uniformly have to do with becoming a better person. The three big metaphors of light or knowledge, travel, as in the journey through life, and geometry, or the building of all things, they all apply to crime fiction, too. California Freemason. Have you ever made references to masonry in your stories? James. The first year I was a master mason, I was appointed chaplain of our lodge by Aram Malion and his senior warden, David Ferreira. Our secretary at the time could never pronounce their names correctly. He'd called them Malone and Ferrari. I thought, Ferrari and Malone sounds like a buddy cop movie. And from that errant thought came Custer Malone and Carmine Ferrari, the two principal detectives in the Cowlop stories. And while the multiracial makeup of the agency was categorically reflective of Masonic ideals, the stories themselves owe more to Rex Stout and the late San Francisco crime writer Joe Gores's DKA Files stories. But the Lodge enjoyed the gag. The Lodge That Wasn't There by Antone Perucci In the 1950s, when the famous touring magician Lee Grable pulled into a new town to perform his Broadway magical mystery extravaganza, the illusionist always sought out a local musician to help with his most famous act, the floating piano. Most of the time, while miraculously levitating in the air and tapping the keys to uproarious applause, the guest performer would simply relish the attention. On one occasion, though, the young woman Grable had chosen completely froze up, just as the acclaimed world's greatest illusionist started the piano's barrel roll, threatening to spoil the whole routine. Don't stop playing, Grable shouted. That's what's keeping you up. J.R. Knight laughs as he recalls the story. Knight heard the story directly from the late Grable, a longtime member of Alamo Lodge No. 122, more than 20 years ago. Shortly after Knight joined him in the Invisible Lodge International, or ILI, a worldwide group of master masons who double as master magicians. 
Today, Knight of Southwest Hackett number 574 is the president of what is very likely the most mysterious affinity lodge in the known or unknown world. Founded by Sir Felix Coram in 1953, the Invisible Lodge has attracted such luminaries as Harry Blackstone, Okido, and Jack Gwynn. And if those names don't ring a bell, the tricks they made famous should. The Floating Lady, The Flying Carpet, and Sawing a Woman in Half. What started out as a small cadre of Freemason magicians has transformed over the years into an organization spanning half a dozen countries and including not only magicians, but also practitioners of the allied arts, such as ventriloquists, fire eaters, clowns, and hypnotists. A motley mix of amateurs and professionals drawn together by their twin passions for masonry and magic. The two go hand in hand, says Ralph Shelton, a professional magician, a member of Orange Grove Lodge number 293, and the ILI coordinator for Southern California. The two crafts, Shelton explains, both share a reverence for mystery, symbolism, and secrecy. Perhaps it's no surprise that some of the most celebrated magicians in history have been Freemasons, most famously Harry Houdini, Howard Thurston, and Dante the Magician. With no central lodge, members of the ILI mostly gather at magic conventions and trade shows. In California, these often take place at the Magic Castle, the famous private club and magic training academy in Hollywood. Needless to say, ILI gatherings can get weird fast, in a wonderful Vegas matinee sort of way. We exchange tips and try out new bits, and there's sometimes an ad hoc performance, Shelton says. In recent years, an initiation ritual was created for new members, which can be performed in a tiled meeting. As an affinity lodge, the ILI is more a club than a proper lodge. As a result, most Grand Lodges don't formally recognize it. No one knows for sure just how long the membership roles are for the group, though that doesn't necessarily owe to its members' unusual profession. Rather, the past masters were just terrible scribes, Knight says with a laugh. You can't make heads or tails of their writing, and since we only offer lifetime memberships, if someone wasn't recorded when they got their card, we have no idea they exist. Perhaps a fitting situation, all things considered. Careless record-keeping aside, the ILI offers its members all the trappings of Freemasonry, signs and symbols, officer positions, and an initiation ceremony, tuxedos and top hats, but with a performer's flair. Thus, magic wands replace Masonic rods, and instead of a sword, the tiler carries a mace and shovel as he guards the entrance to meetings. Why? After whacking the Cowan, what are you supposed to do with him, Shelton offers. The group even has a Lifetime Achievement Award, akin to the Hiram Award, called the Harvey Award, named after the famous Jimmy Stewart movie about a man whose best friend is a six-foot-tall invisible rabbit. The award is a beautiful crystalline glass case, Shelton says, and inside the case, nothing, he says. It's empty. And with that, we will close out this episode uh, where we featured California Freemason magazine from September, October 2020. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.